seated. It's good to see all of you here. This is uh, the last Sunday of July. Next Sunday, we'll not only be sending our kids off to camp, but we will also be having communion, and uh, that's our family service. And so we've been in a series through the book of Daniel. We've been studying the book of Daniel. We haven't just been preaching, but we've been learning and studying. And I can tell you, I for one have learned a great deal, a great deal from this book. And last week we talked about Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the Tree and the Madness was the title of last week's sermon, talking about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tree. Today we change gears as we talk now about a different king. Nebuchadnezzar's reign has ended, and now Belshazzar the king is, uh, replaces him. He is the king of Babylon now as we read. Daniel chapter 5. So I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 to 31. If you can read with me, or just look up at the screen. As usual, we will have some graphics and some images to help us meditate and reflect on these passages. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders, bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, took out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king, nobles, wives, concubines might drink from the holy vessels. So they brought the gold vessels taken out of God's temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king, nobles, wives, concubines, they drank from these holy vessels and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite lampstand on plaster of wall of king's palace. And king saw the back of the hand that was writing, and the king's face grew pale. His thoughts alarmed him. Hip joints went slack. Knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud conjurers, Chaldeans, diviners, and spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold. Authority will also have authority as third ruler and kingdom. And all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation. And so King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered because of the words and his, of the king and his nobles and spoke and said, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination... Insight and wisdom, like wisdom of gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, appointed him chief of magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel named Belshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare interpretation. And Daniel was brought in, and the king spoke and said, Are you the Daniel who is, to, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father brought from Judah? I've heard about you, that a spirit of God is in you, illumination, insight, extraordinary wisdom. Just now the wise men and conjurers were brought in that they might read 
this inscription and make its interpretation known, but they couldn't. But I've heard about you, that you're able to give the interpretation and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known, you will be clothed with purple and will wear a gold necklace and you will have authority as third ruler. And then Daniel answered and said, keep your gifts for yourself. Give your rewards to someone else. But I'll read the inscription and I'll make the interpretation known to you. O king, the most high granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which was bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before Nebuchadnezzar. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he spared, he spared. Whomever he elevated and whoever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, his spirit became so proud, he, became, he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts, dwelling place with wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, body drenched with dew, till he recognized the most high God is ruler over realm of mankind and he's, God sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, brought vessels of God's house, and you, nobles, wives, concubines, have been drinking wine from, the, from these vessels. And you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you don't see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. And then the hand was sent from God, and this interpretation was written out. And this is the inscri inscription that was written out. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and you've been found deficient. And Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar, verse 29, gave orders, clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold, and issued a proclamation concerning that he now had authority as third ruler. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. A long passage, but I think there is an important message here in Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to split this message up into two halves. The first half is holy things, holy things, and the second half is gibberish. Holy things and gibberish, that's what I'm going to talk about today. And so I begin with the first half, holy things, holy things. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, Belshazzar, son of Nebuchadnezzar, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Now, how many of you have recently heard the message, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient? Raise your hand. Well, don't raise your hand. Nobody wants to admit that I am deficient. In fact, this is an unpopular message. No one should be 
told in this postmodern age that you don't have value or you are subpar or you are somehow deficient. That's just not a popular message. But it's being said here. Strong words, you are deficient, weighed on the scales. And this word scales talks about not just deficient, but a comparison being made, a comparison. How many of you were ever compared growing up? Maybe to a sibling, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think about that. Remember how that made you feel. Maybe you were compared to another kid or another classmate. How come, you know, I heard this recently, um, you know, uh, for me, being Asian, if I were to bring anything less than a 90 on a test, you know, it could be said, you are an Asian, not a Bijan or a Cisian. <laughs> and the comparison being made there as, as, you know, as an Asian American and that struggle, are my grades up to par and being compared to other children? What is on the scales is the question. When this verdict is handed down to Belshazzar, you've been weighed on the scales and been found, what's on the other side of the scale? So when we think of this scale, we oftentimes think, well, how is this supposed to work out? The way this works out, when we talk about value in, in biblical times, you, if something is on a scale, it's weighed against something that has equal, equal value. If you have depth, if you have weight, weightiness, value, you should tip the scales in your favor. You will be heavier. But if you do not have value, if you do not have depth, what happens is even if a feather is on the other side of the scale, you still shoot straight up. The feather is heavier than you. In other words, if you are on the scale and it shoots straight up, you're in trouble. You do not have depth. We do not have value. The question is, what is God comparing Belshazzar to? Is God comparing Belshazzar to some abstract standard, something on the other side of the scale? What is it that is so heavy that whatever you, whatever, no matter who you are, we're always going to shoot up because God's justice is just too heavy? Well, actually, it's not as abstract. I believe that what, the thing on the other side of the scale, so you have Belshazzar on this side of the scale, and on the other side of the scale, I believe the thing that is there is a person. Now think, who do you think, who, which person is on the other side of the scale that God is judging Belshazzar on? Think about that. In verse 22, what we see is Daniel telling Belshazzar, even though you knew all of these things about your father, You've not humbled your heart, and you've been proud. In other words, the person that, that Belshazzar is being compared to is his very own father, Nebuchadnezzar. On the other side of the scale is not some abstract notion of God's justice. It's quite simple. Belshazzar is being compared with Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, when you look at verse 1, it says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast. Literally translates, Belshazzar king made a feast. And when you look back at chapter 3, it says those same words, except Nebuchadnezzar the king made an idol. 
So there is this connection, I believe, between chapter 3 and chapter 5. Chapter 3 and chapter 5, this connection being made, Nebuchadnezzar on one hand, Belshazzar on the other hand, they're being compared and contrasted with one another. In fact, I think these few chapters of Daniel have Nebuchadnezzar as the baseline. Nebuchadnezzar is the baseline and the kings after him are being compared. He becomes the standard on the scale. He becomes the one to whom all the kings thereafter, Belshazzar, Darius, are compared to. But the question now, now think about this. Okay, Belshazzar is being compared to Nebuchadnezzar. And if you're following closely with this, you might ask the next question. If Belshazzar is compared to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the same Nebuchadnezzar who was proud, who built idols, the same Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed Jerusalem, the same Nebuchadnezzar that took the objects, the holy objects from the temple, who killed Jews, God's people, and destroyed God's holy temple, then the question that is being asked now in your mind, you're wondering, why? Why does God judge me so harshly where Nebuchadnezzar has shown grace? That's the question. Why is Nebuchadnezzar shown so much grace? And why does God take it so easy on him when on me judgment befalls? This is the classic statement of why do bad things happen? Why is it that I live my life this way and yet I see somebody cheating on their tests and they get to the head of the class? Why is it that I choose to do certain things and I make good choices with my life and yet I see people advancing? Why is it that when the storm hits, some people are suffering and others seemingly escape? Why is it that in my life circumstances, I put in my 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but I only see this much result, and I see somebody who puts in just this, this little labor, and somehow they're millionaires? Why is it that God's grace is showed to some people, but his judgment falls on me or others? That, I think, is the big question of Daniel 5. Belshazzar probably got away thinking, as far as the standard is concerned, I haven't done half the bad things that my father's done. I can get away with a lot more. I'm not as bad as, at least I haven't done the things that she has done. Or at least I don't cut corners the way he does. I'm not as bad. And what we do when we say that is we weigh ourselves. We put ourselves on the scale and we compare ourselves to somebody else. And while we compare ourselves, we put our finger on that scale, if you follow what I'm saying. We put our finger on that scale and we say, I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad, comparatively speaking. But friends, the more we weigh ourselves that way and we put our finger on that scale and we say, I'm not that bad, essentially what we're doing is we're breaking the scale. 
The more we compare ourselves to somebody else with our finger on the scale and say, you know, I'm not as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't, well, at least I'm not as addicted as she is. Or at least I don't act as badly as he does. At least I don't do the things that those husbands do. I'm not as bad. When we do that persistently with our finger on the scales, essentially what we do is we break the scale. God's standards go out of whack because it's no longer God's standard. It is me relatively compared to somebody else. And justice no longer is a thing because we've been playing with the scales and moving holy boundaries around. Listen, the great enemy, the great enemy of the fear of God, it's not godlessness. It's relativity. The great enemy of the fear of God is not godlessness or abject, horrible sin. It's relativity. It's when we say in the little things, I'm not as bad as. It's in the little white lies or the half-truths, I'm not as bad as. Relativity is the thing that breaks the scales because we're always tipping them in our favor. And essentially what we do in the process, friends, listen closely here. I believe the more we play with our scales, it's the same as playing with God's holy objects. We're playing with holy things. When God says, don't touch, and we say, well, you know, I just touched the corner. I'm not as bad as those other people that manhandle it or that do all these things. Well, it's, 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 it's not that bad. Well, the more we, 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 we go and we step into the circle of the forbidden and we just kind of put our toe in there, well, God, does God say don't touch or not? And the more we play around with holy boundaries and the more we play with holy things, we justify we rationalize, we rationalize, we rationalize lies, 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 lies. Friends, the principle, the principle with this first half in playing with holy things is quite simple. Don't play with holy things. Don't play with holy things. When Belshazzar took the holy objects out, it wasn't just the holy things he was playing with, but you move God's markers. We blur God's boundaries. We say it's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not as bad as. When we do that, we're playing. We're playing with holy things. Don't play with holy things. God's standards, they're there for a reason. God's standards are there. It is easy in this day and age for us to play with holy things because everything is relative. But don't do that. Stop comparing yourself to somebody else. Stop comparing yourself to somebody else. See yourself, see ourselves in light of God's law, in light of God's judgments. Do I make the cut? We continue in the second half. Gibberish. And so Belshazzar is playing with holy things, playing with holy things. And then the second half, gibberish. 
Gibberish appears on the wall. I mean, what would that be like if during this service, even as I preach gibberish, a hand appears and it appears on the wall and my knees start knocking together. Well, let's look at this, this gibberish that's on the wall. What is this gibberish? Actually, it's not gibberish. The words in Aramaic, mene, mene, tekel, uparsin, that's just it. Did you hear what I said? The words are in Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of commerce and trade back then. If you didn't speak the same language as somebody else, but you had to do business, well, do you speak Aramaic? It was a universal tongue. These words are simple Aramaic, and yet it says they could not read it. Belshazzar could not understand simple Aramaic. Even his magicians and all the wise persons, they could not read nor understand what is happening here. What is happening? I believe what happens is this. The more we play with holy things, the more we play with fire, the more we play with God's boundaries, the more we play with what God says yes and no to, the more we play with these things, the more we do that, essentially what happens is the Bible becomes nonsensical. We come to Scripture, it no longer makes sense. And even the best teacher, the wise person, cannot unpack it. Why? Because we have no foundation of ethics anymore. We have no ground, no baseline, no foundation of up and down. We've made down, up and up, down. We've turned everything backwards. And when there are no foundation of ethics, basically God's word, Scripture, becomes gibberish, gibberish. They cannot understand these words. I don't get that. What, what, what happened? Was it translated into Aramaic afterwards? Or scholars don't know exactly why. But for whatever reason, these simple words, even the translation of these words, you, you can kind of tell the message there. The translation, the translation of these words quite simply, well, first of all, they're units of measure. But they have a double meaning. These, these, these words literally translate to number to weigh, to divide. I mean, it seems quite clear that the interpretation is God has numbered, he's weighed you, and he's divided your kingdom and your assets. Maybe the wise men could not tell him for fear, for fear to tell the king the truth. That's another dimension about it. We're afraid. We're afraid to call it like it is. And the result is we don't do we don't do a, a favor or kindness to our friend. Actually, not telling somebody the truth hurts them even more. So for whatever reason, the wise men were not able to tell King Belshazzar the truth. They were not able to even interpret these words. And what happens is when the Bible no longer speaks because it no longer has a foundation of ethics, there's no foundation of right and wrong because we've been playing with holy things, the Bible becomes just another book. No efficacy. It, we lose the voice of morality and morals in all of our society. And in the end, everything crashes. Everything crashes. Not, I'm not talking about society. I'm talking about in our lives. In our lives. Everything crashes. And that's what happens. Listen to verse 6. It says, The king's his hip joints went slack. 
He's crashing. His knees began knocking together. And this is a very interesting picture. His hip joints went slack. There's attempts made to translate those words about what does it mean for your hip joints to get, to get slack? Some, the NIV says his legs gave way. If your hip joints turn slack, your legs give way and you fall down. You can't stand. I don't know about that. Some translations talk about how his loins were unlocked. If you literally translate these words, you know what it says? It says that the knots, the knots of his loins were loosened. I want you to think about that. What do you think that means? That if you've had knots in your loins, I mean, that's even a little further down. We're talking about like bowel movement kind of stuff here. That's something from here on south, which was previously maybe backed up, stopped up, he didn't need a laxative because when God's word appeared, all of a sudden the knots in his loins were loosened. Need I spell it out anymore? Something is happening in his pants. But the thing is, and I don't point this out just for fun, those same words are repeated in verse 12. Loosening knots, unlocking Knots shows up in verse 12 where it describes Daniel. And it says, Daniel has the ability, an extraordinary spirit, to loosen knots. Now, our version translates it here as solving difficult problems. But I think that there's a very real sense here where knots are, where we're tightly wound up, but these knots are loosened. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, I think what we're talking, what we're talking about is the log jamming, the constipation that happens, the spiritual backing up, the, the, the blockages that happen when we allow ourselves to continually play with holy things. I know this is turning out to be kind of a, it's turning out to be that message and I didn't plan on today giving a, a convicting, red-hot, you know, one of these kind of, you know, wasabi, straight-to-the-nose kind of sermons. But this text, it's brought us to this place because that night, Belshazzar died. And that's deadly serious. Well, maybe he'll give me a year like Nebuchadnezzar. No! And we think that maybe I can play around for another year and get away with it because God gave Nebuchadnezzar, and he'll, I wasn't as bad, so maybe he'll give me two years. That night, Belshazzar died, and the kingdom was torn asunder. This is serious business. And I can no longer speak to you. I must speak about us. Change of pronouns here. For us, if we... We continue playing with God's holy objects and moving around markers, the ancient paths, string from them. What happens is no wonder, no wonder we are spiritually, mentally, emotionally constipated. No wonder we are backed up in our spirits. Listen, even if Daniel were to come and unlock mysteries, we still have blockages. Either that or there's nothing that remains except judgment. 
I was fortunate yesterday, today's Sunday, yesterday and Friday to spend the weekend down in Galveston. And I'll close with this. And I was not with my family. I was with friends. And with these friends who we hold each other accountable, some of them going through really hard stuff, people from different professions, Christians. And there were about a dozen of us in a beach house. <laughs> and we didn't frolic in the sand or just talk about meaningless things. We talked about our lives. We talked about our temptations. We talked about our struggles. We talked about our marital difficulties. We talked about the tension, for some of us, even the possibility of losing significant things. Why? Because of poor choices, sins, little things that we thought weren't so bad, tipping the scales in my favor. I, myself, must live a life knowing that if I continue to tip the scales in my favor, that there will be a hand appearing right about there, writing gibberish on the wall, if I continually abuse God's holy things and His standards. And so with these brothers, I was, we, all of us, sharing our lives. Why? Why? Because we know that either we live the right way, in choosing to live in a way that follows God's paths, we know in straying from it, there is intense danger. There is intense danger. And it is necessary for all of us. Listen, you think that I'm a pastor, that I was made in a factory, right? And anointed with holy oil since the day I was born. It poured down my beard and I was holy and like a Nazarite, I never cut my hair, and that I never sin, or that I never struggle, or that I never have temptations. I know what sin tastes like. And I know that it poisons your soul, it captures you, and it will destroy everything. Everything. And because I know what sin tastes like, and because I've had the writing appear on the wall for me in my life, I've Crap my pants. I've had my bowels unloosened. Well, not literally, but you, you see where I'm going with this? How many times do we have to see the writing on the wall to say, God, enough is enough. I'm going to get into recovery. I am going to repent. I'm going to turn around. This must end today. Tomorrow. Maybe next week. Next. You're going to die tonight, Belshazzar. This cannot continue. Do we risk everything, our lives, our livelihood, our careers, our marriages, because we like to play with the scales? Rationalize, rationalize, lies, 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 lies. I know what that's like. But friends, let's come into the light. Let's let that end. Let's repent. Let's turn from our ways. Today's the first Sunday of our fifth year as a church. What better way? What better way to start our fifth year as a church other than consecrating ourselves wholly to the Lord?
And I, I've just been reading the book of Nehemiah this morning, this past season. And as they rebuild the presence of God, even as this whole building is going off, rebuilding the presence of God, they didn't gather around and just say, yay, we're, they, they committed themselves to God. Let's do that. Let's see, the worship team. And at this time, you know, I want to invite us all, if we could close our eyes. And as the worship team plays in the background, I invite you, I invite us all to think about those holy objects that we've been playing around with. What are those holy things? What are the things that in this fifth year as a church need to, absolutely need to stop? What are the things that need to be confessed? What are the things that need strong accountability? What are the things that need to get out into, into the open? We are only as sick as our secrets. I pray that we would be a courageous church. Courageous people are those who face themselves, who recognize God's markers, recognize that we've been playing with them as toys, having drinking parties with them. No, put them back. We put the markers back where they belong. We put the holy things back, and we recognize God's standards and His ways. And so I invite you at this time just to make a prayer, whatever that prayer looks like. Some kind of a prayer. A commitment. A willingness, a new willingness. Some fight. Something. But I invite you to make your prayer. And even if you want, I don't know who's going to do this. I don't know if anybody's going to do this here. But if you feel that you want to get in that posture, maybe even find just a place to kneel. And if we could kneel and pray and say, God, I need to make this right. I'm willing. I want to fight. To find a place by your seat to just kneel and to wrestle with this and to pray.
And so, Lord, I pray that health and healing would come about. But I also close this talk with one word, grace. But I will also recognize that, Lord, this word grace is so abused. It's easily abused by our church, by the American church. Grace covers everything, but there are, there are no standards. There are no rules. There are no... That's antinomianism. It's a theological error. Grace without law, grace without truth is meaningless. And only until we recognize that we also have transgressed. Well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as her. No. Until we recognize that we also have transgressed. We do not reach out for the life preserver. That is salvation. We've fashioned a raft of our own making. And we've made and orchestrated our own salvation. No. No. Grace comes. Grace comes to the poor sinners that says, wretched man or woman that I am, what can free me from this body of death? And so, as we struggle with this, as we fight, Lord, I pray that we would not forget, but that we would continue the struggle, that we would continue the fight, that repentance would be sure and certain, if not here, that we would kneel at home on our own and seek you and seek change and renewal. And I pray, Lord, I pray that healing and release would come as we get right, as we find a healthier way, as we relocate those ancient paths. So come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this service. Now, we didn't expect a revival service, but instead, what we got was this message from Daniel. Convict us, Lord. Belshazzar died that night. Help us not to tarry any longer. Belshazzar died that night. That night. Help us not to tarry.